0: On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Randy Backer from the Guess Who and BTO, and you are listening to Rock and Roll
1: Archaeology. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Time was drifting. This
2: rocker got a roll, so I hit the road and made my getaway. Restless feeling, really got a hold. I started searching for a better way, diggers. Hey, what the fuckers, what the fuck, oh, wait, the wrong show. Okay, oh, okay, let me, let's rein myself in here. Business, 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 what's the business is going on? That doesn't even make any fucking sense, does it? Anyway, actually, let me introduce you to our latest show. Is it Rolling Bob? Talking Bob Dylan. (laughs) It's exactly that. We are very excited to have hosts Carrie Shale and Lucas Hares podcast all about rock and roll Nobel laureate Bob Dylan. Uh, There's no doubt it is a hole we needed to fill uh, and we got the best diggers. Each episode, Carrie and Lucas introduce us to, you know, important people who love Bob as much as we do. Uh, People like uh, author Neil Gaiman or Barney Hoskins, a host of another uh, Pantheon podcast, Rocks Back Pages. Uh, Or musicians like uh, Billy Bragg, uh, Robin Hitchcock have been on the show. Uh, Each episode begins with the guest reading a bit of their favorite Dylan lyrics. And then the discussion goes on from there, uh, like a perfect English garden party. Well, of course uh, it does, because... This is, is it rolling, Bob? Talking Bob Dylan. Uh, it's produced and recorded in London. Uh, we're very excited to have Carrie and Lucas, who, uh, by the way, are full-time actors. And even in some shows you may have seen, such as Lucas, who can be found on such great BBC productions as The East Enders* and Broadchurch, and most recently in Netflix's The Crown. Uh, and Kerry, uh, uh, who is in one of my favorite uh, films, uh, The Trip to Spain, uh, and a bunch of other films. But really, uh, he's been the voice of Sir Topham Hatt on Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends since uh, 2010. So please do yourself a favor and get your weekly dose of Bob here on Pantheon, the music podcast network. Find all you need at pantheonpodcasts.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, Pantheon Pods. Facebook is Pantheon Podcasts, uh, plural. And uh, don't forget, please tell a friend. Thank you. Okay, let's get to it.
0: I have some left-
2: my diggers chill that is the watchword for today's episode we are entering the world of chill beats or chill edm something uh, a little over to the left but an important discussion to have especially if you are interested in the music business of today josh leg goes by the moniker Goldroom. Actually, I, I might suggest uh, the name reflects more of a collective, though Josh is clearly in charge. Um, I don't do a lot of new music here on Deeper Digs and Rock, though I might change uh, here. Um, I've done some, and uh, I seem to be getting more and more requests. So, um, But when I do... Um, it is to, to, to be educated myself. Um, you know, I'll be the first to tell you, I, I know little of EDM and little of the music and how it interacts with culture and society today. I say that because I know the last half of the 20th century uh, music was, The cultural touchstone for youth culture and today's music just it just doesn't hold the same way. There are too many other options out there, and and this is not meant to be critical or to be judgy. It's just the that we are living um, this particular story now, uh, as opposed to seeing the past. and And I can comment on the past because. You know, it's been written, or rather, it's being written right now. Um, But this is one of my favorite interviews because I did learn so much. Uh, Josh was very free and giving on what it's uh, been like to enter uh, the music business uh, and, you know, kind of had a nadir uh, back in uh, 2010, and then to create a successful career out of the last 10 years. Uh, And you know what? Uh, in the right setting, his music is very cool. By the time I was done doing my research, I had him on a playlist or two. So even though I kind of resisted, his music got to me. And maybe that is a a positive in this fragmented and tribal world the internets, uh, the interwebs have created, Uh, you know, a place for all things given its proper time and place. You know, back in the day, there's no way you could be a metalhead and a disco king, and I mean ever. You just wouldn't be taken seriously, or or maybe that was just too much. Um, today you, you know you can easily float from one genre to another with ease uh, depending on tastes and mood or event and settings. Uh, it, it's all good and, and the choices are, are wide and deep. So that, that is definitely a cool thing about today's music. Okay, uh, let's get to know Goldroom and learn Josh's secrets to making it and keeping a good career in today's music business. Here is Josh Legg of Golden. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, uh, Josh Leg. Uh, now I, I understand you also go by Gold Room, but we'll we'll just stick with Josh with you here. So um how are you doing today?
3: I'm great. I'm here at my house in Southern California, Northeast LA and happy to be chatting.
2: Yeah, so so that leads me to my first question. So how does one uh, uh, born and raised in the chilly and proper East Coast ivy of Boston, come to California and uh, with a Trojan education, capture a new California sound so succinctly?
3: Um, that's a great question. I think, I don't know. I've, uh, Los Angeles has always been a romantic place to me. And I think a lot of yeah. people who grow up here become yeah. pretty uh, <laughs> jaded by <it. laughs> jaded by it, you know, immediately when you yeah. grow up. And for me, I still, you know, I, I think driving down the ten and going under the bridge and seeing, um, seeing the Pacific Ocean, you know, never gets old for me. Uh, and I've never lost, I've never lost that feeling of romance about being here. And maybe I will someday, but I haven't yet. And I, you know, when I started Goldroom um i had been in a handful of bands and i'd started a record label and um i i wanted to do something that felt like an overt homage to how i felt about the city and the things that were happening and i never thought it would turn into a to an eight-year music project that would take me around the world but um here we are did. <laughs>
2: yeah yeah so is this you know I think it's a fair question. Is this what L.A. sounds like nowadays? Um, you know, how does one go from, let's say, the Beach Boys uh, to Gold Room? That's a great question
3: also. Um, yeah, I I mean, no, I don't really think it sounds like L.A. I think it sounds like the interpretation that, that happens in my head <laughs> of, uh-huh. of L.A., which is probably, well, not probably, certainly very warped.
2: Um, More the- mythology than reality.
3: Yeah, I've I've definitely lived through an interesting period musically in LA though where when I started uh you know I remember the band that I was in before Golden we were called Nightwaves and I remember like house sound guys at venues laughing at us because we had uh keyboards and laptops on stage and you know to go from that to becoming a part of an interesting scene that was happening you know as the the rise of electronic music and EDM started to happen worldwide. And uh, there was this nice pocket of people who were making um, mellow or leaning dance music in Los Angeles. And I don't think any of us really identified with what was happening worldwide with this sort of EDM phenomenon. And I, I happen to love this really small, uh, if, if you know, electronic music is this big pie, I love a, a really narrow slice of it. And um, there happened to be a bunch of us that were all doing kind of the same thing we all and um, a scene really started to happen there in 2012 to 2014, 2015. So it's been really interesting to see that happen. I think LA and the people in it and the types of experiences they were interested in having at a live show were was definitely different um what was happening you know around the rest of the country and the rest of the world and i think that definitely was a feedback loop that affected the type of music that was made as well Mm -hmm. so to some extent i think the answer has to be yes but you know at the beginning i think it was kind of a cinematic pretend you know um escapist version of la that i was imagining in my head more so than any sort of reality
2: with like-minded individuals as well huh
3: for sure. Yeah, I think other people happen to agree. And, and obviously there were some people that, you know, liked the music and wanted to come to the shows and agreed as well. So.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you.
0: Listen now, go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It, 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 when you first dive into it, yeah, I, I, I didn't hear uh, like, you know, a, an L.A. sound. And and for, for our, our fans, which we call the diggers uh, out there, you know, most of them know, and if, if, if you don't, I was born and raised in L.A. And so, you know, I kind of get that SoCal scene. But unlike you, I I didn't romanticize it because I was born and raised there and uh and I do as I got deeper into uh listening to the tracks I I could you know kind of feel that uh that there is this that chill vibe of uh of the southern california scene that that at least is the the expectation that that people uh, uh, get when they they first arrive, or or tourists, or what have you, uh, and and to some extent it is real. It is it is it, you know it, it it's a wonderful part of the country. The weather's always nice. You got the Pacific Ocean. Uh, as long as you uh, you know don't have to travel more than uh, you know ten miles uh, from your uh, location, <laughs> you're 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 doing okay uh, there, right? I
3: think that's part of it, though, right? Is is there so much traffic? You know, when I moved, I'm from Boston, maybe a typical masshole. I don't know. I was (laughs) very, very stressed out every time I drove here for Uh the first couple of years. Uh And eventually, um, California changed me for the better. I'm a much more relaxed person now than when I moved from Boston. And I do think that there is a through line through Californian artists that have succeeded, you know, on a worldwide scale. All the way back to the Beach Boys, like you said, maybe with the exception of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who were definitely L.A. fast, yeah. Um, but but you know a, a lot of a lot of the biggest music to come out of L.A. You know whether it's uh, you know like you mentioned Beach Boys or whether it's you know the, uh, Dr. Dre's and Snoop Dogg in the early '90s with the Chronic and and the records that they put out. Um, everything's a little bit slower. Yeah, you know, When G-pop. I think of what, yeah. when I think of what LA sounds like, I think of G-Funk, I, you know? And so when everything's a little bit slower, you know, that actually extends all the way to what, to what uh, some of, you know, my peers and the guys that I look up to here that we're making, um, sort of diving into electronic music uh, with a lot of live instrumentation, like poolside and some of the Australian acts that moved here, uh, Miami horror and bag Raiders, uh, a lot of these acts were making dance music, but it was maybe at 90 BPM or 100 BPM or 110 BPM, where most music, dance music that you hear at clubs is 120, 125,
2: yeah. 130.
3: So, per- b- um, So, yeah, I think that there is a through line of sort of, I mean, literally slower tempos.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so and, and that is something that we find throughout uh, your music, a very chill vibe. Uh, which probably makes a uh, great uh, listening uh, on those uh, LA freeways, huh?
3: It's definitely part of it. I mean, music to drive to, music to put your headphones to, and lean yeah. back to. Yeah. You know, or, or you know, some people have often said it. My music isn't the music you listen at the club; it's the music that you listen to on the way home from
2: the club. <sighs> That's interesting. So, you know, you, you've already mentioned a couple of different people and we've talked about uh, the creation of a scene that you were a part of here at the beginning of this uh, soon to be ending decade here. Uh, and, you know, I, I find it interesting with talking to younger musicians like yourself that it is a far more co- collaborative industry than what I remember back growing up in the 70s, 80s and 90s.
3: Absolutely. Um I mean I think a big part of that is just the existence of the internet at all, the fact that we can communicate so easily. I think a lot of artists that were in bands in the 70s, 80s and 90s would be That was be, very
2: competitive. Yeah. It was uh, you know, sure. Yeah, and to your I, point, I, you were on, you, you were on your own island, yeah.
3: Yeah, and I think that that competitive spirit is also alive, <laughs> but I think that um I think that the amount that people can that people see other groups of musicians supporting each other and it, helping everybody raise each other level. I think that that's something that people can see working and that mm-hmm. wasn't something that you really could have ever seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you even know, remotely
2: it, over, you know, global distances.
3: Exactly. And so I think it, it causes that to happen more.
2: I also think that that tends
3: to happen, especially, um, in, in club culture and with dance music. And that's because, it's so easy to move around and DJ a lot. And so if you're DJing at clubs, the promoters end up being um, really important players in the scene, whereas I don't know if that's as true as much in rock music because it tends to just be talent buyers at, at uh, rock clubs or at, at hard ticket venues, whereas these promoters become really important tastemakers in the scene for dance music. And so if you can become a part of a world, uh, it can really benefit you. It wasn't something I ever even set out to do, um, but then there's just, as I mentioned, there just sort of happened to be a bunch of other people that really had sort of similar feelings at the time. And, um, you know, there was a sort of special time that happened here in LA for a few years.
2: Is it still existing or is it gone global uh, and out, out of the box of so- Southern California? Or, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned that twice. It seemed like it was a moment and maybe that moment's passed.
3: Yeah, I think it definitely has. Um you know, as I, my the sort of beginning of Goldrurm in my career is always going to get tied to sort of this boom of EDM, which um, I really can't relate to very much. You know, I grew up playing acoustic guitar and I was a singer songwriter for a you know a decade of my life where I never showed anybody my music, and so a lot of what of, of what EDM represents is pretty ugly to me, and I I don't like it. I don't like the music. I don't like I don't like the business. There's just a lot that I don't like about it. Um, which is kind of funny because I, you know, I ended up becoming a DJ and I love, like I said, this sort of small corner of dance music. And so, you know, as happens, especially in a you know, a flash in the pan sort of moment like that, things move and they ebb and they flow. And I think a lot of the people that were making that scene really great have moved on to do other things or have stopped. And that's totally fine because you know, the people that I've mentioned that I already mentioned and and uh you know others like like classics or you know i'm I'm trying to think of other peers of mine that were around at that point you know we've all been able to maintain um our careers past then i think because we've continued to make music that we believe in and we've held on to fans that have allowed us to tour um all over so yeah i mean it did i think it really did start in la and it was able to branch off into sort of a worldwide thing where with any scene, there are, are usually a handful of acts that are able to gain enough fans and have enough traction that they can keep making music and continue to tour. Right. I've been mm-hmm. fortunate enough to end up in that position.
2: So uh, you were early enough on the wave that uh, you were able to establish yourself uh, globally and uh, now have a worldwide audience that you can tap into as you you know make your music and uh, present new music uh, along the way, right? totally yeah uh, so uh, well tell us about your earliest musical inspirations growing up uh, you know was there was there music always playing in the house
3: no you know it's uh, there it always seems to be like there's two types of musicians and there's the ones that are surrounded by you know that grow up underneath the underneath the piano while their dad's playing it yeah, yeah, and you know there's always a record on the record player and that was not me at all I was uh, my parents both worked really hard to support our family they're working full-time and I I was an only child and I spent a lot of time alone at home and we did have uh we had a you know well it probably was a bad record collection um <laughs> looking back on it but but uh, my parents had music around and it's funny that you bring up the Beach Boys. I was not like a big Beach Boys fan, but my first musical memory of something, oh. me, knowing that I enjoyed something, was um, playing Surfing USA mm. ten thousand times in a row on a cassette. And oh. you know, with the, the with dream started
2: early, my friend.
3: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's sort of my earliest. Yeah, that's my earliest musical memory there. And I think it was just something early in elementary school that became um, the group of friends that I was with. And this seems like when I look back at it, maybe pretty early for kids to start thinking this way, but just uh, diving into um, a whole bunch of like getting into music became something that was cool. And so I was really interested in that and I fell really quickly in love with a lot of stuff and I started to dig and buy well, I'd save up my money and try and buy entire artist discographies um, pretty quickly. Really? So I, like my first, my first loves, you know, were mostly grunge. This was like in the, you know, mid nineties. Ah, okay. um, and so I got really into alternative music and grunge at that point. And, you know, as I got older, I, got, I the, you know, I sort of like a lot of kids, I think had phases in different ways. What really switched for me was when I stopped playing cello and I started playing guitar and um, especially I had a, like a a Squire strat for a while that I was learning on. But once I got an acoustic guitar and I started to listen to more music that had acoustic guitar in it, I think that really unlocked something for me um, because I'd always been really interested in creating my own music. And so I think when I really fell in love with the craft, not of songwriting, but even just sort of understanding more so than just listening to music for fun or, um, for the sonics, which is something that I always did. But when I first started to really become obsessive about it was when I had a guitar and I was realizing that I wanted to write my own songs. And that just made me really interested in what made other people's songs good. And so at that point, I got really into to folk music. Um, I got I started to go way backwards uh, and got started just diving into a lot of um, folkier and acoustic music from the 60s and 70s. And became a huge Dylan fan for a long time, and <laughs> slowly started there. to. Right. Yeah, and I slowly started to learn as much as I could about the songwriting process, and that really led me down the the long
2: path. So, uh, do I understand that you started off uh, as a, a cello uh, player, uh, and, and then and then moved from there? Was that your first instrument? Because you are yeah. a multi instrumentalist, uh, from what I
3: understand. Sure. Yeah, I played cello for a, for five or six years and um i so you always the basics
2: of music and uh theory and uh, and i take it you can read and write if you play cello
3: sure i could read i don't ever write any notation i don't write notation anymore yeah. um but yeah i could read and i played in orchestras and did that for a while i never excelled in it mostly because i didn't practice hard enough and the time that i spent playing cello on my own i I tended to be writing my own stuff, which is difficult on an instrument like the cello, but I was always interested in that. And I wasn't really in that world. You don't generally get encouraged, um, to go down those roads. Mm. So the thing that shifted for me was, you know, I got interested in playing guitar, I think just because my, my memory serves that I was just really into Nirvana's nevermind. And And then I wanted to get a guitar so I could learn how to play music like that. Um, But pretty, (laughs) like Kurt Cobain,
2: right, right, right,
3: exactly. Um, But and yeah, like every other eleven-year-old white white kid in America at that point. (laughs) But um, as soon as I got a guitar, it's so much friendlier, you know, to to write chords and then to be able to sing over it. That pretty quickly, I got really, you know, uh, my guitar. My guitar teacher because my parents of course wanted me to learn so i was i was studying with a teacher and he was very um encouraging of of me writing my own stuff so that ah, so that was it that was a, that was a...
2: Forced you to go and learn uh, the classics uh he he wanted you to just learn chord structures uh and scales and uh melodic structure and and then uh you know build your own from there huh
3: Yeah. He actually had a great method. You know, uh, we would always study from, I think we were doing the Suzuki method, which is like the normal Mm. classical method that I think a lot of teachers still use. Um, but one for the last, uh, 20 minutes of every lesson I could bring a song in and he would teach, uh, he would teach me how to play it. So I could learn other popular songs that I was interested in. And then every other lesson I could bring in a song of my own and we'd go through it and he'd help me work stuff out. So I, I kind of liked, that
2: method. Well, you you mentioned two of your your earliest uh inspirations and and this is beginning to make sense to me. I mean, Nirvana uh obviously and uh you know, you're being 11 uh when uh, Nevermind uh comes out, uh, you know, that 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 is a record that literally changes the music business overnight. Uh maybe to the detriment to the three guys, but uh Uh, It did happen. And, uh, you know, uh, there were a lot of kids like you uh, with that. And then from Nirvana, which is great quality songwriting, uh, as most people who know the Nirvana story today know that Kurt was a huge Beatles fan. And of course, you can't go wrong from there. But you also mentioned Bob Dylan. And now there is interesting, uh, especially with a an EDM artists like yourself, because there, you know, there's not exactly a lot of lyrical content uh, true. to that kind of music. So, so you know, kind of, I want to explore a little bit how, how Dylan influenced you and continues to influence you today.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those examples of, you know, when they say, I think this is probably true for a lot of creative arts, but you want to learn as much nuance as you can, and learn all the rules, and then forget them when you create.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I yeah. think that that got to know the rules tr-
2: to break them. Yeah,
3: you know, I I definitely spent you know years of my life uh, really trying to analyze and learn, and trying to write songs that move me in the way that Dylan songs did. And um, and I don't, I feel it's one of the things that's a regret for me about Goldrum is that I don't get to exercise that muscle as much as I'd like to. But I do think that, you know, I use, I play with it as much as I can when I can. And so, you know, there are some songs where I'm, I have more room to play. And so, you know, lyrically I can, I can expound on things, you know, in a more interesting way. I wish that I was able, you know, I, I, you know, I wish, I wish I was able to go in that direction more, but I also think that one thing about Dylan that tends to not be talked about nearly enough is just that he actually was a a really wonderful melody writer. Oh yeah. And almost all of my favorite songwriters write pretty child, child childlike melodies. Mm -hmm. Um, And they write stuff that uh, a five-year-old could pick up or a three-year-old could pick up, um, you know, by the end of the song. And that's something that Dylan excelled at and tends to be a through line with all the people that, um, that I idolize the most, you know, I'd say, the, the next through point there is is Tom Petty, yeah, who is who is probably my biggest inspiration, and you know they write pretty. They're friends, obviously, and they wrote similar music in some ways. But the one thing that was certainly true as a through line between them was that, um, you know, even though Dylan lyrics were so important, I do think that at at the very core melody comes melody and and, and phrasing comes first.
2: Well, it's interesting you brought up Petty because, uh, like you, he he's a, a East Coast transplant. Uh, that comes to L.A. and kind of adopts that jangly birdsy L.A. uh sound uh, from the from the '60s, and uh, you know reinvents a, a new SoCal sound as well.
3: Absolutely, that's a great point. And you know, he came out and sort of got looped into into new in, into the idea of new wave, and mm-hmm. uh, his, his first couple of records definitely had a bit more of a rock and stripped back feeling that did go along with a lot of sort of new wave stuff that was happening at the moment. But especially once he teamed up with Rick Rubin and did wildflowers and a couple of the other records that they did together. Um, yeah, he really defined an era and defined a sound. Um, you know, a lot of the Laurel Canyon sound, you know, I think comes from that era of petty and what he was able to do sonically. And a lot of that is slower and more laid back and really, uh, introspective and romantic and nostalgic.
2: Yeah. 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 So, okay. So we have your original, uh, inspiration. Uh, and, uh, so you, you, you started off as a, as a, you said a singer songwriter. So how do you go from Dylan Nirvana and Patty to Daft Punk, Alan Brax and Fred Falk?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, well I, you know, it, my cousin was, I think when I was like 15 or 16, my cousin gave me an old task four track uh, so that I could start recording my songs. And I pretty quickly realized that I loved trying to make the songs that I wrote sound as good as possible. And that led me down, you know, really a decade long path of, of trying to learn how to make the music that I was playing sound better, which, you know, at it's, we're just talking about producing music at its core. I didn't know that that's what I was learning about, but it was. And so at some point, I got a copy of, I think it was a program called Sonar. And then later, um, I, 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 maybe it was a program called, I think Cubase exists now. So I don't know what it was called then, but something else. And I bounced around from a couple different programs. So I started to learn how to record music onto my laptop. Once I got to USC, that's where things changed because they have a, a great music school. And they have a music industry program. And I became friends with a lot of people who were working in music pretty consistently. And that wasn't something that I ever thought I could pursue as a career. In fact, I'd never even really played my music for anyone in public. I'd done a couple of open mics sort of on a lark, but not um, not because I expected anything of it. Uh, but I became friends with a lot of people who were into music because I it was I was really passionate about it. And so through that, somebody had a copy of Logic 6, I think. Um, which which I don't think had been bought by Apple yet. And, um, and so I got that, and that was the first program where it was pretty e- easy to use MIDI to, to incorporate in-the-box electronic sounds into your music. Yeah. And so I was just interested in, you know, I didn't have a bass guitar, so I started to use the MIDI to do bass parts mm-hmm. for the songs that I was writing. And I think that once I realized, oh, I can use this keyboard to make all these different sounds, it made me interested in using um, electronic sounds. And I think at the same time that made me recognize electronic sounds and music more and made me more open to listening toward, to electronic music. And as you might think, it was an act like postal service that was one of the first that made me feel like, oh, I, I actually, I'm actually really interested in these textures and how they can um, how they can be used to enhance the songwriting. Um, you know, i I'd, I'd been a Death capture for Cutie fan, and then hearing Postal Service and hearing Ben Gibbard's voice and songwriting over a hundred percent electronic production um, really just made me more open to everything. Yeah. And so, you know, not to mention the fact that I'm in college for the first time, and I think everybody's ears sort of open up and are willing. To go anywhere at that point, you know. Definitely, when I was in high school, I was a purist, um, and wouldn't have dreamed of buying a synthesizer or thinking about electronic music in any way. Um, so that slowly led me down that path, and then, and then after after college, as I as I started to blog about music, um, I slowly started to you know, Daft Punk was the was the entry, you know, was the gateway drug um, because to that French
2: uh, uh, the French EDM sound.
3: Yeah, and they obviously were one of the biggest. You know, I, oh. I I stumbled upon a few of their songs, and then my friend took me to, to uh, a now defunct festival in Las Vegas called Vegas that Rage Against Machine and Daft Punk headlined in 2006 or 2007, and um, so I saw the Pyramid Show, which is now pretty. Um,
2: uh, yeah, that's ed- a classic. That's yeah, that's a big change in the music business right there. Mm-hmm and it and
3: it you know one that one show made me feel like you could make communicative pop music from that form and um it really it just moved me in in every way and uh, and what ended up happening was as i as i dug into daft punk and other people from that scene i i found this sort of sub genre of, of french artists that were incorporating more sort of traditional live instruments and band elements in their music. And so it was less techno, less house music. And it was more, I mean, even though the genre is technically called French house, you know, to my ears, I was hearing a lot of live bass guitars, you know, the chords were much more musical than you normally hear. Um, and the, the drum progressions and the bass lines were really funky and, um, had a lot of, of funk influence going on. Mm-hmm. And so those are things that really related to me, you know, uh, and got me really inspired. So I just dug in more and more and more. And, uh, that, that really led me into that, that world. And like I said, I, you know, I've, I've never been a club kid. Um, dance music was never a huge part of my life, but I fell in love with this, like small piece of the pie that I still love.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you mentioned, Uh, earlier that when you were younger, you you weren't just interested in um, the the melody or the song itself or the lyrics. It was the sonic palette uh, that also was an attraction to you. So I can see where uh, this, I mean, you go from, you know, five primary colors to... You know this huge uh, uh, palette of uh, of opportunity uh, sonically, uh, going from say uh, you know uh, the guitar as a primary instrument to uh, to a uh, a keyboard and, and computer, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this was of course also during a time when, the, in the late two thousands, you know, the digital audio workstations that everybody uses to record music whether it's Pro Tools or um, Logic um, or FL Studio or um, Ableton. So those are sort of maybe the big four players. Um, the, the, the users and the software engineers were going through an, a monumental leap together at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And it had sort of been, it was reaching the peak of a basically decade-long Um, push to try and make it so that making perfect, the most giant, crisp, thickest, most perfect sounds that you've ever imagined, whether you're doing it with a voice, a a recording of a guitar, or completely synthesized sounds were possible so that you can manipulate anything into everything. And we hit this point near the end of the 2000s, I think, where—and this is the sort of problem with EDM, in my opinion—is that we sort of reached this sort of uh, peak perfection moment, where the music lost any sense of um, humanness, any any sense of 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 soul. What's been really interesting, you know, in the 2010s, I think, and especially in the last five years, is that. most new music that I'm hearing or the best new music that I'm hearing. And a lot of music that I hear from young people is we've got these at this point, these perfect tools at our disposal. Um, and what everyone's trying to do is make the most human sounding stuff possible. And a lot of the tools that are at our disposal now are actually there to help, um, make things not sound as perfect as, as they could be. So that's really exciting, um, to me, but at the time, sorry to to answer your question. Um, it was, it was incredibly liberating and exciting to have all these extra things at my disposal. And yes, you know, I'd been trying to record guitars for 10 years and could never make anything sound good. And then I, and then I, and then I like play a chord with a, you know, a a Roland Jupiter eight, you know, patch running on it. And it sounds like the, the most lush thing that I've ever heard in my life. And all of a sudden I can make this music that does justice what I'm hearing in my in my head. Right. And so that, that was that was incredibly in, exciting to me.
2: All right. So for, for our musician diggers uh, out there, can, can you give us like a, a typical day for you? I'm, I'm interested in hearing how you go about the creation process. So, you know, like what equipment do you go for first on a typical day?
3: Sure. Um, I, I try to still get, I'm, I play the guitar the best. Um, I, I try to play the guitar at the beginning of a session as much as possible, although that doesn't normally happen. I, when I'm going about writing a song, especially if I'm, it depends if I'm writing a song or if I'm in the studio with the express intent of, of like making a track. Um, So a lot of mornings I wake up and I pick up an acoustic guitar and I try to write a song. Like I think that's a muscle that's really important to continue to exercise, regardless of sort of what your end goal is. And ninety-nine percent of those songs don't go don't go anywhere and don't end up uh, end up being recorded, even Uh, you know maybe in my iPhone voice notes or whatever. The way that it tends to work is that I think about what I'm going to do a lot before I do it. And rarely does it start with a jam where I'm, like, picking up a guitar or sitting down at a keyboard and just moving around until I figure something out. Oh, so you
2: out. already have some sort of a melody. In no, your it's
3: head more a, more a concept. You... So, you know, okay. I, I tend to think about everything from a 30,000-foot view. And so if I'm starting a session, I'm usually thinking, like, this is what I'm feeling right now. I'd like to make a ballad. Or I really want to make something, you know, that sounds like that's inspired by this other song or or maybe it is a melody or, uh, or a word. And so I usually have some, some sort of non-musical idea that is gonna drive what starts to happen. And then the, and then the first thing that will happen is usually I'll sit behind the keyboard and um, I have a handful of, um, of analog synthesizers as well as obviously a, a MIDI keyboard right next to my workstation. And I'll just mess around with patches until I find something that sounds inspiring to me. And then I'll just, uh, sort of noodle around until something starts to happen. Um, I try really hard not to do this, but I find that I do it more and more because it works really quickly. There's this service called splice, which has very much revolutionized the way that, um, I think most of the music that you hear, um, I was going to say on the radio, but that you hear that comes out anywhere, uh, has really changed the way most music is made and it's a it's a subscription service where you go in and all of these artists and other people have uploaded uh, packs of of audio samples that are drums and loops and melodies and vocal bits and all this different stuff and it's searchable it's organized by key and by bpm and so it's an incredibly quick and easy way to have idea starters so if you don't have a drummer in the room you can get a little drum loop and throw it in your daw and start um, getting inspired from there. And so uh, I tend to maybe find like a, a little drum loop that's interesting for me, and then I'll start noodling around on a keyboard and things will s- start to happen for them. The songwriting really happens when I start to sing, and that usually happens pretty much right away as soon as I figure out chords. And um, I've always been of the, I sing I sing gibberish in syllables, and usually a word or two emerges. And I usually try and follow that um, follow that lead. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm definitely a little bit more from the spiritual camp of like, I let the song try and take me where it's supposed to go rather than wrangle it, um, into where I want it to go. So almost always I will press record and I'll sing a whole bunch of gibberish and then I'll listen back. And like the song, the, there will be an important part of the song in that. And then I just have to have to discover
2: the rest. So follow the muse, uh, literally. Yeah,
3: almost always the for for songs that you know when I'm working yeah, I collaborate a lot with other people as well. But when I'm working alone, which is fairly often, um, you know, it's it's o- almost always that f- the first draft. You know, I'll be working on it for a little bit, but then when I lay that first draft down and there aren't any lyrics yet, something will pop out, and I'll I'll just I'll just know that that's the and it'll be like the first lyric or maybe it's. A bit of the hook or whatever and it'll just be very clear to me what the song is supposed to be
2: nice okay all right i appreciate that that was a great explanation so all right let's so let's go back a little bit to you and socal uh, uh in college there at usc and uh, friend uh kyle peterson and you decide to pursue music was so i was that the the reason to go to sc or was that just an aside that occurred when when you were there uh on campus
3: no, I studied biology and then stopped studying biology and didn't know what to do, so I moved to El Salvador for six months and did volunteer work, and then I came I came back and studied psychology, and so um, I ended up studying psychology and nutrition, and I was doing research with one of my professors and really just not enjoying, enjoying life and um, didn't really know what to do? And Kyle, who I had gotten really close with and had been on the sailing team with me at USC, he had gone through the music industry program and was working for a publishing company. And um, he was really interested in starting a business in music, and we had always bonded. He was the one he was the person who gave me the copy of Logic actually. Um, and so we had always been really close and and talked a lot about music and discovered a lot of music together uh, during our time in college. And so he was interested in starting a business, um, a music related business. And at the time I was interested in starting a business of any sort. And so Anything we ended up about linking-
2: biology and psychology, right?
3: Yeah. So we ended up linking up, um, and, and deciding to start a, a music management company. And, and Kyle had a lot of mentors in the music business that were really supportive of what he was doing. And so we had a lot of belief that, uh, we could start something and, and make some, you know, the, the, Fragility of our—I don't know—we we had a we had a lot of bold beliefs about how successful we could be, um, and so we kind of just dove in and um, tried to figure out everything else later. And starting a you know a music-related company in 2007 was not the best idea
2: for a business. <laughs>
3: <No>. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty tough time. Yeah, that's you probably know, was, the
2: nadir of the record industry, right? This
3: was pre SoundCloud, you know. Yeah. I love telling yeah. people about this who are just getting started now. You know, it's pretty incredible that if uh, if somebody discovers my music, there's just there's just pretty much infinite ways for me to f- be able to connect with them again. If I want to tell them, you know, about my next song, or if I'm playing a show in their city. Yeah, today. You know, in two yeah, in, yeah not, today not in two thousand. <laughs> no, in two thousand seven, if I want. The way people discovered music was through music blogs, and if I wanted somebody to blog about my song, I had to give them the mp3 for free, and then they would write about the song, and they would post the mp3 for a free download, so I would be compensated in no way, and on top of that, I would have absolutely no no ability and no idea who downloaded the song, who liked it, and I would have no ability to contact them again, and so... All you had to do was hope that your songs got so big that um that you were able to start touring off them, of course, which really none of the artists that we work with ever got to. And I think that in the long run, the our company was called Binary Entertainment. and we um you know we were getting into this was around the period of time when we were starting to get into electronic music. And so we actually started to book um, acts that were making the kind of music that we liked they're mostly from France and from Australia. And so we booked, um, a whole bunch of artists to come play their first shows here. So even though we started as managers and a record label, I think that our, our sort of larger mark on the scene was that we, we threw some, some fairly important early shows, you know, for electronic music here in LA of, of that style. And then, um, and then the blog that we ran and that I wrote for and was really my baby for three or four years was, uh, really my introduction to the music industry and how getting the word out about music works.
2: So you went from like a singer songwriter uh, into uh, this band night waves, and then you start a music business that is promoting uh, electronic music, and you're bringing some of your favorite uh, electronic musicians into LA to perform. Is, is that right? Do I get that right? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I'm blogging about. So, this is a very organic process to go from, um, you know, Josh Leg to Goldrum. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so
3: I had never at this point. I, I, I still had been making music and writing. I'd probably written, you know. Yeah, certainly hundreds and maybe even thousands of songs at that point but never played them for anybody never never had any proper shows or anything like that never thought
2: much of never it being a blogger a blogger and a promoter well yeah I mean I'm even talking
3: about the previous 10 years or whatever uh-huh. Kyle however had been a singer-songwriter in Chicago and was part of sort of the acoustic emo scene there um, in the early early 2000s and had experience touring and playing shows and putting music out. I always really loved his voice. And so as we, when we started binary, we sort of naturally started to write music together. And I found that, uh, I love the way his voice sounded, um, singing the stuff that I was writing. And so we started to collaborate and that's what, that's what, how Nightwaves became a thing. And since we had a record label, why not put the Nightwaves music out on the record label? So all of a sudden that became my first experience putting music out and lo and behold, you know, blogs wrote about the stuff that we released. And, you know, I had always thought that, you know, songwriting was, I think I mentioned this, you know, a very sort of magical or spiritual thing that was very personal and insular and should be kept that way to be pure. And it was probably out of fear that I never really tried to put my music out there anymore. But I, of course, then I found that when people like your music, and you can have that feedback where somebody says, "This music helped me," or "I love this about it." It can be an incredibly liberating and exciting and an inspirational thing. Yeah. And so I got really inspired by that, and we started to make a whole bunch more music, and that that really led me down the path towards Goldroom. And and basically, what happened was I wrote a whole bunch of um, music that were demos, hypothetically for for Night Waves. And the other, at this point we had added a third member, um, my friend Dave Urbina into the band Nightwaves. And Kyle and Dave just weren't feeling the music for for the project that much. And so I had this bucket of demos that I really loved, but that maybe were a little bit more dance floor friendly than, um, than Nightwaves was. And I didn't know what to do with them. And so I had to, you know, a few months there, where I was kind of depressed because I had this music and I didn't understand what my you know what opportunity might be lying right in front of me. and uh, And then I decided to take those and spin them off into my own project, which I decided to call Goldroom.
2: Okay, so now I have to ask the dumb question: Why did you choose the name of your moniker after a bar in Echo Park?
3: That's a great question. I can answer it really easily. I mean, I, at this point, I, you know, I knew I had immediately started to become really interested and inspired, not by like sort of these mythical French, um, figures, but by a lot of people that, um, were around my age that were making music in and around LA. And I remember hearing poolside. I remember hearing classics. I remember hearing Miami horror who were all living in LA at the time and um, they were all incredibly inspiring to me. And they were making music that I could tell was inspired by some of that French house influence as well, but they were writing almost like, the songwriting was almost rock-like, um, came from the same lineage that I loved, and it all sounded incredibly L.A. to me. <laughs> and so these demos that I was making for Nightwaves that became the first Gold Room songs, were very overtly influenced by what I imagined to be a new LA sound that we talked about at the beginning of our chat here, and um, and so in in naming the project I wanted to also pay homage to LA, and so you know I was thinking about street names and neighborhood names and bars and other you know other things. I chose the Gold Room because Kyle and I would go to the Gold. They had just the cheapest booths. And so we, we would go there and you could buy... A,
2: Typical musician. Yeah.
3: You could buy a shot of tequila and a tecate for $3. Um, oh, that's a deal. And so we would... Kyle and I, when we had big decisions to make for Binary, we'd go there during the day. And our joke always was that the Gold Room would provide the answer to whatever question we had, and we'd walk out with an answer. And I went in there alone one day to try and figure out what to call myself. And I drank a bunch of tequila and some... Tecates and I walked out of the bar thinking, this is actually before I even had decided to start the project. It was kind of a, it would have, you know, we had invested a lot into Nightwave, so it was a big deal to think about starting a side project. And um, and I walked out deciding that I was going to do it. And not only was I going to do it, but Golden was the right name. I also really liked the imagery and this idea that Southern California is is this one giant golden room. And that's sort of the way people think about it from from around the world. And it's not necessarily so true here. But um, in, you know, L.A. is a very sun baked, dusty, sort of golden place. And so I, I always liked the imagery of it.
2: Yeah, it, it, it may start off as Gold Room, but uh, if you're not careful, it'll end up like Hotel California quicker. than <laughs> you can imagine. So. This is true. <laughs> uh, OK, so Gold Room was basically your magic eight ball. Uh, I get it. It makes sense. So how was getting into the record business at Like, like we kind of talked a little bit about this, but I'm gonna go a little deeper in this. You know, it's nadir uh, at the end of the last decade, and now you've been growing with the resurgence of the industry. Do do you see that? I mean, I mean, obviously it was the passion, and you were gonna do this regardless. This is this is your love. You you recognize that, Uh, and I and I think you know in our discussion today, we we see this trajectory from a a very young age. You're you're just you. There may be things in the way, but you're constantly moving towards this but you do decide that uh you know you're you're gonna do this thing uh, on your own uh, now separated from your your friend there uh and it's not the best time to be trying to get in the music business yeah so this is
3: end of 2011 and at this point soundcloud is is happening um yeah. especially with electronic music and so one thing that i felt that that is great about SoundCloud and was very important was that people could follow you. And Facebook was becoming a thing for the first time uh, as Mm -hmm. far as uh, artist pages. And so I was able to do two really important things from the beginning there, which was uh, really base all of my music on SoundCloud and get people to come follow me there. But then the other thing was I gave almost all my music away for free Um, you know, obviously we're pre-streaming at this point. And so I gave almost everything away for free. All I did was I asked you to like my Facebook page. So if people wanted to download the remixes that I was making or the covers that I was doing or the originals, you could, uh, you could do that, but you had to go through a gate where you had to like my Facebook page. So, um, unlike even just a few years before, I was able to convert a lot of potential fans into people that I could reach out to again. And I think that that was, I don't know, that's sort of like a a little bit more of a business related thing. And I suppose there's a lot of people that were maybe trying to do that too. Uh, I don't know. It was a little bit of that. It was a little bit of like, I, I think there's a lot of luck involved with, you know, me happening to be making the right type of music at the right time. And there were a lot of people interested in hearing, um, you know, sort of laid-back live instrumentation, slow disco stuff, um, you know, tropical infused. At that at that point, and so, um, yeah, I don't know. I it's funny. I could I could talk about it for hours, but I sort of hate to elaborate on a lot of it because I feel like a lot of it was just really fortuitous. Um, mm-hmm. fortuitous timing, you know, as far as the way the industry was going, I also think that entering, I, I started, I put an EP out and I might've done a couple small DJ sets in LA because I knew people around here, but then all of a sudden I put a remix out that did, uh, that, that was well-received online. And I got emails from two promoters in Toronto and Montreal that wanted to book me. And so they offered to fly me there and put me in a hotel and have me play these shows and I'd come home and I'd have money also. And nice. that was the most insane thing that I that had ever happened to me and um, the idea that that was something that I might be able to do again was the most inspiring <laughs> thing that's that I could imagine and so you know this was only a few months after I launched the project and so I was I was at this point I was all in. It's like if I can make this if I can make this my my life that would be incredible and I'd always come from a background of being in bands you know, where you're sharing the decision-making process with a whole bunch of other people and you're sharing the money with a whole bunch of different people. And all of a sudden I was alone with no manager, wasn't no agent. I wasn't sharing the decision-making process or the money with anybody. And it just felt like um, the barrier to entry to where I could turn this into a job uh, seemed much lower and he is much lower in that world. There's another thing about dance music. Yeah. Not just for
2: you. Yeah. Yeah. It's there. It seems like there's a very entrepreneurial streak that's almost required these days, uh, to, to kind of make it in, in, in the music business because it's all on you, you, you know, in good and bad ways.
3: Yeah. I think it's a net neutral. It's definitely true. And I also think that, uh, I don't think that you could purely be entrepreneurial and, um, and find your way into success as an artist in the music business previously. And I do think it's possible to do that now. Right. That's certainly a negative. Um, And, you know, for me, I've, I wake up and write songs every day and that's always been the most important thing to me. And it's, I think this is probably the third time I've mentioned this in this conversation, but it's really weird to me that I ended up being a part of a specific section of the music industry that represents a lot of what I don't like about the music business. Um, And so, you know, being in sort of the DJ world and EDM culture has been, you know, a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. But one of the interesting things at that point was that, uh, club culture was starting to take off again. And that allowed me to get a foot in the door in a lot of interesting ways. And, you know, if a band is going to go to Toronto to play a show, it's four people flying them there, getting gear there, playing at a hard ticket venue, playing at a venue where you have to buy tickets, um, Venues don't want to lose money on a show, uh, and they're not getting supplemented with any sort of outside money from sponsorships or anything like that. And so there's a lot of barriers to entry to even get to a place where you can tour anywhere. And with music, especially at that time, there were club nights all over the country that were getting liquor sponsorships and otherwise. And they also have an incentive to, they don't necessarily need to make money every week. What's important to them is to build a brand so that they can continue to throw their show for years, and um, and so because of that, they can they can book and pay uh, electronic artists that come out a, a much higher fee, which is shared by less people. And there's uh, so there's this much lower barrier to entry to to be touring. And I wish that that still existed today. Like a lot of a lot of those club nights that were incredibly supportive of up and coming acts in the early 2010s don't exist anymore. Um, and we're a part of that sort of EDM bubble that we talked about that, that lasted yeah. there for about five years. But, you know, I got lucky enough that starting, you know, not long after I launched the Golden Project, enough people were interested in what I was doing that I started to, um, that I was out DJing almost every weekend, flying around to different um, cities around North America.
2: So you uh you now are on your own. You're your gold room. You you're doing DJ uh work uh solo. You're you're coming home and writing your own uh material. Mm-hmm. Uh and you do 3 EPs. So why why was it that you had to wait until about 2016 to release your first full album uh West of the West?
3: Sure. I definitely I'm an album person. Well, I don't know if I'm an album person. I'm a bundle person. <laughs> ah. I like in my opinion a complete thought. There is
2: a lot of talk that the, you know, the album as we know, it is kind of a dead. That's so silly to me. Days. I feel like even if I was 12,
3: if I really liked an artist, I still would want to. And I wanted to tell my friend about that artist. I still would be like, and they're like, where do I start? The best thing to do would be to send them a handful of songs. Like start here. Here's a, yeah. here's a bundle yeah. of,
2: here's the entry. Yeah, And,
3: yeah. um and the idea that like, that's not a valuable thing is insane to me, especially just because people like to, to uh, you know, absorb content for I understand why a song like a songs are getting shorter. This makes sense to me. But I think that, you know, the amount of time that people want to listen to something um, and be absorbed by it and be interested in it. And, you know, that's that's 20 to 40 minutes or or longer maybe even right you know podcasts last yeah, longer than yeah. that um, <laughs> yeah yes we do <laughs> so uh, in any case you know I always have the the feeling and I, I I never stop writing songs they tend to end up falling into periods that make sense for me to bundle and ah. so it just happened to be that you know I I think I had eight of those original demos. And I picked the four that I, that I felt the strongest in. And I was like, well, these are the first four. This is the first EP. And, um, and things kind of evolved from there where I'm always writing a whole bunch of stuff. And the question is, you know, I'll put a a few songs out and then and then pull all of the ones that form a complete thought together. It just happened to be that the first few times that I did that, they were four or six songs long. If I had felt like my complete thought was 10 or 14 songs, that's how long I would have put something out there as well. I also, for what it's worth, you know, you really only get one real shot at like the, the industry-wide, you know, quote unquote debut album. And, and so I wanted to wait until I had, partners around me where I felt like um, I could do my debut album, you know, justice. And so I think that there are a few times where I could have put stuff together and pulled a full length together in 2014 or 2015, but didn't, because I didn't feel like I could do it justice.
2: Uh, That's very intelligent, clever. Um, I I see, you know, it's almost like you realized... You know, you've got to hone this craft a little bit, uh, play in, quote-unquote, the minor leagues uh, before, you know, you're ready to pull a full— deck out uh to get that that big shot uh as you did in 2016 with west of the west um that's that's cool that's very cool it's uh, 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 others should follow that example because you know uh the music industry is not really built for for that as it used to be it used to be that you know you you came uh, on not fully formed they helped you uh through a, a series of smaller uh records and then you know then then came uh that big moment And and now it's it's about mass product and you know getting uh, as much out there. uh, I I I liken it more to uh, a puppy mill than uh, than a a stud farm uh, as uh, as it may have used to have been. But you you seem to have realized that. And I don't know if this was a cognizant thought, but at least that's kind of how it came about. And then in 2016, you you had a full album out that did really well. Yeah, I mean,
3: I wanted. I think the the key is also just if you you know in the you know a lot of before pre-streaming pre-internet it it just required a lot of of effort and money and planning and expertise yeah. to put anything out mm-hmm. and um and so that like i understand the argument that because it was hard it made it that only only people that sort of quote unquote deserved it you know, would get the opportunity, um, to, to put something out. Um, but you know, in my opinion, if, if you're writing a whole bunch of material and and you love it, you should put it out, and, you know, not for the sake of content. And there's definitely, you know, a lot of, I feel like managers these days, that just be like, well, you know, we're putting, it's time we're putting we're putting out a song every, you know, every month. And that's just going to yeah. be the way that this works from now on. That seems to yeah. be what it feels like. And that seems silly to me. You know, I don't think you should ever put stuff out for the sake of putting it out. But for me, I always felt even in 2012, it was like, I, I have these songs that I love um, and I want it, you know, because of the way the internet works, I feel like I can get each of each of them can get a moment to shine for a second. And so I, even at that point was, you know, Very into the idea of just releasing songs at a time, even if I knew that they, that they should be bundled at some point and that they were a part of a, of a larger thought. Like my embrace EP was definitely, you know, I, I really think of that record as being my debut. It's not, it's not a full length, but it's like 30 minutes long. So it's almost full length. Yeah. Um, and I released each of those six songs individually before pulling them together, even though I knew that that was a record. And that was, you know, that was in 2013, I think. And so, yeah, from my perspective, I actually think that it's, it's great that you can put music out really easily. And I think it's great that we get to hear more of an artist's catalog. You know, it's one of the reasons why I think when I talk to young artists, I think that the worst thing you can do now is just try and write singles just because songs are coming out individually doesn't mean that they should sound like, They should sound like whatever in your head a single sounds like. Um, One of the beautiful things about being able to release a lot of music right now is that it should give everybody the opportunity to be more experimental in their music so that they can show all of the sides of what they do.
2: Right, right. I get that. I get that. So now I understand that 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 even though mostly uh, you're you're doing electronic music, you perform these songs live with a band.
3: Yeah. So starting, you know, I started to DJ there in, in 2011 and 2012, as I mentioned. But it became apparent to me pretty quickly as as we developed a little bit of, well, in conjunction with developing a little bit of a fan base, which gave me a little bit more wiggle room to do what I wanted to do performing live. You know, I I have always used a lot of live instrumentation. In the Gold Room songs, even, you know, a lot of the syn- the synthetic sounds and the synthesizers right there, analog synthesizers that I've recorded live. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of guitar and live bass and live hand percussion. And so for me, it was a very, especially because I've always been in bands, it was a very natural progression to think that I would like to perform this live. Um, I also was starting to see at that point that when people were, um, creating live versions of electronic shows they often resembled dj shows and it would be very hard to have any sort of understanding of what was even happening up there and so my perspective always was that i wanted to keep the live show and the dj show as far apart as possible and um so when we started we performed as a three-piece and that eventually you know expanded into a four-piece which expands even further into a five-piece or a six-piece when we play at festivals, um, or for big shows that that we choose to. But yeah, I you know I James Murphy said about LCD Sound System that he always wanted the live show basically to be a collection of people that were the greatest LCD Sound System cover band of all time, because it was impossible <laughs> to really recreate what was happening in the studio because it was all played by one person. Um, wow. so they would just do their best to do them justice. And that's the way that I've always felt about gold that I wanted to surround, you know, I can play a lot of instruments, but I play them all poorly. <laughs> and so, um, my goal was let's, to,
2: let's, let's get the best guy or girl, uh, for that particular instrument.
3: Right. My goal has always been to surround myself with really talented people who understand and love what I do and who can help reinterpret the songs for a live setting. And so it's always been, it's starting in 2013, we started to tour live as a band and, um, have been doing that ever, ever since I would, you know, I'd say two thirds of the shows that I play are DJ shows just, um, because it's, I wouldn't be able to go to Asia or Australia or South America with the band very much. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can do that kind of stuff as a DJ, um, and, uh, and, and one third of the shows that we play are with the band. And it tends to be if we play at festivals or if we do a bigger tour that it's with the band.
2: Well, you know, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of a of a band that that uh, I, is a favorite of mine. That's Thievery Corporation. Sure. Uh, you know, where they, you you've, you you know you've got that uh, it, it's electronic based, it's groove oriented, uh, but there's you know usually a, a fairly significant band uh, that goes out there, even though uh, the two guys are you know really the ones who make the music. So, and, and that that brings me to another point, which I, I I guess this is a a bit of a connection with with that is that you you seem to prefer for female vocalists on your on your track. Do you do you write in keys better suited to that register, or or is it just you know the the, the, the is it the lyrical content that just makes you uh, think that it really should have a female female voice behind it, or what 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 is with
3: that? It's been a, I think a confluence of, a, of of a number of factors. I, the, my first manager Jerry was the first person who could because my first EP was only my voice um, and the remix that I mentioned was a remix that I did for Nikki and the dove, uh, for a song called mother protect. And that song got pretty big online and got me, probably got me my first handful of, of DJ bookings. And my manager said, you know, your production sound really good with beautiful female vocals on it. You should try collaborating with, um, with some female vocalists. And so that led me down that path. And I think that that was pretty natural too, because I didn't, you're still trying to, still trying to figure out what it means to be Goldgrim and I'm alone. I'm a producer. If I were to collaborate with a male vocalist, do I sing that? Do they sing that? What does that mean? You know? uh, And so it was much more natural for me to have a featured female, a featured vocalist that was female. And I do, I write falsetto all the time. I, I find melodies maybe easier singing falsetto than I do with my chest voice. And, Perhaps that um, lends itself more towards uh, a female register.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. All right, so it seems like West of the West was a huge step in your career, but then you suffered a pretty bad surfing accident. Yeah,
3: we were. I was with the band. Um, we were in Tulum, in Mexico, to play a festival on the beach there, and had a day off the South day of before. Cancun, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And, um, we were on the beach, you know, enjoying our day off and I've always been a, a water person. I I grew up on boats and it's, boats are a big part of my life. They're the the ocean is kind of my other passion besides
2: Yeah. You you mentioned that uh, you were on the sailing team at USC. Yeah.
3: I mean, you asked if I went to USC for music and I, I didn't, I didn't move to LA for music at all. I moved to LA so that I could sail year round um and it's one of the reasons why i still live here is so i can sail uh but yeah i i i was in the water and we were just playing i wasn't actually surfing at the moment uh that this happened my drummer was on the beach and i just wanted i was ready to leave the water and i was body surfing actually so there's just and this is on the caribbean side so there's really like not even yeah. big waves
2: oh, well, yeah in fact you've got uh You've got uh, an island that's uh, out there, Cozumel, that's yep. uh, slowing down the waves. It
3: was very mellow, very weird. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of my life, um, you know, in these types of situations, and I had a freak accident where wave just picked me up, weird, uh, flipped me over, and my head dropped me on my head. My head hit the sand, and um, I was I was immediately able to like get up and walk to a daybed on the beach. Um, so I, I didn't suffer. I mean, it was a traumatic injury. I broke to my vertebrae in my neck, but, uh, but I had a very weird, you know, rest of that day, uh, uh, and ended up staying in a hospital in Cancun for uh, a week and a half and then, uh, got cleared to fly. And I flew back to LA and stayed in a hospital in LA for a couple more weeks and, uh, learned how to walk again and get back to my house and stayed there pretty bottled up for a while and had to explain to everybody what happened. And I mean, it was definitely you know traumatic from a personal perspective and from a business perspective. A lot of people thought that Goldrum was just over at that point. So this was in 2017. Uh, and so I had to cancel a bunch of shows, which was unfortunate. And I was really um, excited and, very driven to get back on the road as fast as I could. And so I, I was lucky enough to get booked for Fuji rock in Tokyo, outside of Tokyo, just kind of their Coachella. And I was going there to DJ. And I think that that, um, that was the first show that I came back for. I played it in a neck brace.
2: <laughs> Ouch. Um, yeah, not exciting or fun. I can imagine. No, but it
3: definitely, you know, has, I figured as soon as I could play shows again, that I'd kind of just be fine, and that everything would be cool. And it definitely yeah it doesn't really work that way. Well. Yeah, it's it's definitely affected. <laughs> there's a
2: there's a bit of PTSD that goes on. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's affected my life in a lot of um, significant ways since then, for sure. Yeah, but yeah. but I'm I'm healthy now, and you know have been able to you know just finished wrapped up this live tour with the band this year. So um, you know it's taken a while, but things are good.
2: Well, how did, how did the accident inspire your latest album, Plunge and Surface? And I, and I mean, it certainly sounds like it helped name the album.
3: Yeah, there is. A, it, there's the direct correlation there. <laughs> uh, but um, West of the West, which was the previous record, was really, you know, as we talked about, you know, I took putting out my first full length um, really seriously. And I, I tried to make it really perfect. And, uh, coming off of that, I think I was really interested in making something a bit more messy, a bit more raw and a bit more human. And so I was already interested in doing something a bit more raw. And then I break my neck and, you know, I'm obviously dealing with the mental, all of the mental issues that come with, you know, um, I could have died, you know, I could have been, I could have been paralyzed. And so I was dealing with a lot of that too. And you know, I'm on painkillers, trying to come back and tour, and it feels like my life's been tossed up. And so, a lot of my li- a lot of those life events were um, also pushing me in that direction. And so, uh, my inspirations and everything that was happening in my life was pushing me towards doing something that was a lot darker and a lot more introspective and uh a bit more raw. And so that's what led towards the songs that became plunge. Um and the song's called Plunge and Surface because I spent a year trying to write this record and it was a slog. And I yeah. love everything that came out of it, but it was slow and it was a slog. And it was, you know, during you know, right as I had been injured and trying to recover. Um the second half of the record, which is Surface, is really me finally being recovered and finding joy in the music again. Um, and the reason why they occupy the same space in the record is that all of those songs from Surface, I actually reinterpreted the all of the songs that I had that I had written after my injury and reinterpreted them in the style of of the way Daft Punk might do it. Um, so I sort of, for the first time in a few years, really fell in love with dance music again.
2: Yeah, so I understand each song. It's 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 a bit of a concept album. So each song uh, on one disc has a companion song on the second disc, right? Exactly,
3: and I love you saying that they're different discs, even though there aren't different physical. Yeah, yeah. That, even
2: though we don't we don't look in those terms. That's
3: definitely the way that yeah. I look at it, and that the and mm-hmm. and that the two sides of the record are mirror images of each of each other. They're the same. They're made up of the same parts, but they're opposites. And so each song has a sister song on the other side. And, uh, you know, one song was written um, almost entirely live, um, you know, lots of live instrumentation. They'd, most of those songs have, you know, our sort of traditional songwriting and all the things that I've been building towards. And they're usually, they're pretty dark and they're definitely not DJable. Um, And as, as I was starting to sort of find, find myself and emerge from, from this injury, I was finding that, you know, I was enjoying uplifting dance music again. And so, uh, I was also getting interested in how a lot of my heroes from that French house scene made music. And, you know, they were sampling a lot of slow, funky, um, live music from the seventies, uh, and eighties. And so I was interested in, I've never really worked with samples before, I was played everything. And so I was interested in working with samples, but I don't, there's there's a lot of reasons why I don't wanna go back and start crate digging. I just don't think I'm that kind of producer. But what I realized was that a lot of the music that I'd recorded over the last year was slow, live, funk, funky stuff that was uh, that reminded me a lot of the music that my heroes had sampled. And so why not just sample myself?
2: Yeah, which is a weird concept. uh, Is that a new thing? Or uh, did you invent that? I've never heard of anybody actually going back and sampling themselves. There are
3: definitely producers that do that. I have a friend named Leno, who I don't, for me, he's famous for the way that he makes every song, is that he'll make a loop that's like piano and drums and guitar and bass. And then he immediately takes that loop and samples itself. And that's how he makes his songs um and so i've always found that to be interesting i don't know if anyone there are definitely artists that have done remix albums but i don't know if they've approached it from the same perspective that i did where i was like the the express intent of making the sister song is to recontextualize it and to find a sample within it that revealed something new about the song that wasn't there originally and you know i was taking a lot of songs that were are 80 or 90 bpm sort of you know late night, uh, driving songs and turn it and trying to turn them into songs that I could, that I could DJ, you know, at a pool party.
2: Right. Right. At more of 120 beats per minute. Right. So I, I also, I had a lot of fun with, uh, uh, you know, trying to peg the songs, uh, from the first disc with the, the, the second. Um, and, and I, I, am not going to, uh, 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 spoil, uh, uh, it for our listeners out there when, when they go to listen to this, but, you know, I, I, I definitely love that you're incredible. And I, and I believe, I think are the, you know, the two companion songs uh, from one disc to another. Did I get that one? Yeah, right? you did
3: indeed. There was a, there was a while where I was hoping to maybe have the titles actually work in conjunction.
2: Um, mm-hmm. Oh, very Dylan-esque.
3: So like in in that case, it would have been, you know, you put the entire line together and it's, I think you're incredible. Um, Right. Which didn't end up exactly working out, but a lot of them are call and response. There's a song called, do you feel it now? And the surface version of that song is called, I can feel it. Um, Mm. And so I, I do like to think that the two sides are sort of talking to each other. And in some ways it's me talking to the version of me that was, you know, depressed and, Injured and trying to figure out yeah. what comes next.
2: Yeah. 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 Very clever. All right. So, how are audiences reacting to the new material live?
3: Uh, it's been really fun. I've had Goldrum is like the least punk band of all time. And I actually had <laughs> mine, who works in music, say that our show felt punk to him, oh. which was uh, really exciting to me. I, you know, I think he means in the spirit of, of, you know, of punk, not, not that we literally sound like a punk act. Uh, but yeah, you know,
2: no no, no no crunchy guitars or that sort of, thing.
3: there's just a lot. There's a, there's a lot of guitar, um, on this record. And mm. because of that, I'm playing, you know, I, I guess I would say in previous tours, I'm probably playing 50% keys and 50% guitar on stage. Mm. And on this tour, it's more like 80% guitar. And, um, so it just feels a lot more live, uh, not live, feels a lot more rock band. And that's been an, that's been exciting. And I think that the thing that I've been proud about is that we've been able to embrace the um, grunginess of this record and apply it to some of our older material so that the the presentation of our show doesn't feel like I think it would be very easy for us.
2: Disjointed. Yeah. It, it, it's it's a, it's a whole unit uh, from start to finish.
3: Definitely. And I think it would have been very, yeah. I think, you know, just because, you know, we're always going to be playing older material that people want to hear. I think it'd be yeah. pretty easy for the, for our shows to just sort of feel stagnant or like the band isn't evolving. And mm-hmm. I'm really proud of the way that we chose to attack playing these songs because it feels like a bit of a different band. And I'm, I'm like already excited for the next period to see, uh, you know, for me, artistically, my, my, uh, inspirations and my likes always sort of rubber band back and forth. And so I'm interested to see what, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to go any further in this direction. So I'm interested to find out what happens, um, next, but it's been really fun. And the, the most fun part for me is that, you know, I, I try to, when we're figuring out how to play the set, since we're playing dance music, we want it to be a party. We often do 12 to 15 minute long. um, Mini sets is kind of the best way to put it where the music never stops. And so you'll have a beat going for 15 minutes and we work through two or three of our songs. Um, oh so a
2: medley okay yes
3: exactly um, and so the transitions in between the songs uh, you mm-hmm. know I'm sort of take coming from a dance music background we sort of I sort of use DJ transitions and what I would do as a DJ to inform how we do those blends in between the songs um, mm-hmm. and so you know we're often uh, you know we're working with changing tempos and occasionally changing keys and this is working with you know musicians that I love and respect, you know, it's, it's really fun in the rehearsal process to figure out how we get from here to there uh, and have it keep going and keep the momentum building and keep the energy building and keep the groove going the whole time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I knew I know the routine myself myself playing in a cover band, uh, putting those songs together so that it creates some sort of a cohesive unit uh, uh, and that you can keep them on the dance floor for uh, totally more than more than three or four minutes. So. All right. So let's toss the music out for a minute and talk wine. Uh, I understand uh, the California living has seeped so much into your blood. You've become a wine connoisseur.
3: Oh, indeed. This is a good. I'm happy to talk about wine. I love wine. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I started going up to the Central Coast uh, not long after college. And that was kind of a more natural progression for me, just because it's a two hour drive rather than driving all the way to Northern California. And I'd sailed a lot in Santa Barbara. Just kind of interested. And I just knowing that there were some wineries up there, it just sounded like something fun. Uh, but I pretty quickly fell in love with the land up there. And I think the,
2: yeah, like the San Inez Valley, right? Totally.
3: The, yeah, it's so beautiful there. I just fell in love with the people and the land and the climate. And I think that, um, you know, this is what terroir is. You can, you can taste that in the wine. And so I, it didn't take long before I fell in love. Uh, I, I think, you know, I could say there's this guy, Kenneth Volk, who, um, he founded wild horse Wines, no, winemaker. Yep. Who you can, would, he, he sold that company cause he wanted to remain independent and he started his own, um, winery, uh, called Kenneth Volk vineyards, but he, he made a, a Pinot noir. Um, he did, he did, he did almost entirely hundred percent, um, varietals for all his wines, which was a, a great way to learn about wine. Um, before you start diving into blends, I guess. But anyway, there was a Pinot that he made <laughs> that I tried.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Stick with a single grape and uh, learn the, the taste of that before uh, getting into the blends. I see. Yeah. Okay.
3: Anyway, I, f- I fell in love with the Pinot Noir that he made, and 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 have kind of been diving in ever since. I love
2: mm-hmm. I love wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it goes well with your music, I must say. Thank you.
3: Yeah, it's it's <laughs> definitely a,
2: a a nice
3: California red is feels like a a feet up during sunset kind of experience
2: yeah exactly 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 uh so i want to ask a bit about the future of pop music because i think you and uh, a, a lot of people like yourself are are inventing it um uh through the use of the computer as the main instrument of choice and i uh and, and uh, i I'll just let our, our our diggers know that you know we talked a little bit about this uh, uh uh before we 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 turned the machine on and started recording but that um you know the the latter half of the 20th century was a very guitar driven um instrument uh of composition and that has waned and that and that the Turn of the clock, whether it's artificial or not, you know we're in this new century. I mean, hell, we're in a new millennium. And while it doesn't happen instantaneous, it takes uh, you know a period of time for for that to to switch. Uh, I, I see the same thing in the decades. You, you can't say the 1960s began in 1960; didn't really begin about 63, 64. 1970s, same thing, till 71, 72, 73, sort of thing, and on and on. And now. Uh, you know, we, we've made a huge, huge leap, uh, you know, going from 1999 to 2000. And you are definitely a part of this new sort of um, music creation that will go on through at least the rest of this century. So, you know, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Um, it, it, does, it, am, I, am I making sense? Does it does it does this make sense to you about what I'm trying to get here? Usually
3: I love talking about this. This is the biggest question. I think, in in this is the big question about creativity and art and the human species, uh, yeah. which is that r- maybe writing is the only truly democratic medium, which is that anybody can sit down with wor- and write words, but painting, photography, film, and oh and, yeah, and,
2: you you have to be you have to have talent, you have to be borned or what have you, right? Well forget the talent thing,
3: just having the ability to make something requires, uh, requires Mm. money Mm. and, and, Mm. and materials. Um, So if you're painting, you know, you need to be able literally to buy the materials in order to, whether you have talent or skill, as long as you have a desire to paint a painting um, you know, there was a period of, there was a long period of time, decades, hundreds of years where it was, you maybe didn't even have access to that. Um, And this is very true in music, you know, where you couldn't record yourself unless you had a recording studio until the 80s. And then in the 80s, you could buy a four track or something like that. Yeah. Um, and computers finally have democratized that to a much more significant level. But even with computers being around in the 2000s and the early 2010s, uh, it still required a good computer. You had to buy a DAW that cost hundreds of dollars. And then after that, you still had to have a pretty significant, there was a pretty steep learning curve on figuring out how to make music. And it would be, you would need some talent in order, in order to translate something that you might hear in your head, um, onto a recording. Um, and so what's fascinating to me is that, uh, for the first time in history, I could take somebody who has zero musical talent, and if they dedicated two months, eight weeks of their life. And I said just a few simple things like here's, here's a one sheet, one piece of paper with a bullet point list of like, these are the things you're doing at the end for these eight weeks. At the end of those eight weeks, I feel very confident that I could teach literally anybody on the planet how to make a song that is their original song. That sounds that's from a sonic perspective, sounds good enough to be on the radio. And that's, that, as a fact, is an absolutely incredible change in music. We, yeah, there's you would we, we'd be nowhere near that ten years ago. And I'll I'll mention what the bullet points are for what it's worth. It's get a copy of Ableton Live. So you need a computer, but get a copy of Ableton Live. Um, buy a subscription to the the sample uh, the sample Splice. pack website Splice that I mentioned before, mm-hmm. and and then number three. Um, it would be like a, a series of like go to these YouTube pages and watch these YouTube tutorials um, basically on how to use Ableton. Um, and using those tools, I feel very confident that after that after two months you could you could make a song that from a sonic perspective is radio ready. So what's exciting right. what's exciting about that is it means that almost anybody, um that the only thing that matters from then on is the creativity and so can you write a song that's good enough and then can you can you perform that song and can you write and perform that song in such a way that it can connect to other people um and in the past uh 99.9 of people that uh, maybe had the the vision in their head to, to make a song had absolutely no access to be able to do that and what's exciting now is you know, I can say that, but I think that in, in another five or ten years, you know, programs like GarageBand or Ableton or whatever will become so <laughs> ubiquitous or there'll be programs on our phones or whatever that that people will realize that they can do that. And so it's really exciting to think about a world where, um, you know, we all grew up with, with crayons and colored pencils and everyone thinks that they can draw a picture. Nobody thinks that that's inaccessible to them, but everybody thinks that writing and recording a song is inaccessible to them. And I think in five or ten years, it, it might seem like writing and recording a song is accessible to everyone, and that's exciting to me. It doesn't mean that we'll get, it, like, I don't know if that's good or bad for the music business. I don't know if that's good or bad for people that like the way that music discovery has worked for. Yeah, uh, that's what I was for say. a century. <laughs> it would be difficult for that, right? yeah. But yeah. Um, from purely from like a species standpoint. Uh, I think it's wonderful that we're getting to that point. And I think that we will find some amazing music will come from it. And there will be, you know, as you might expect, I think that there's going to be uh, like an increasingly huge amount of awful music. But who cares? (laughs) You know, I only want to hear, I just want to hear the good stuff.
2: Well, the trick then becomes, how do you find the good stuff in a right. city of mediocrity?
3: So, the, Okay, so that brings up the second interesting point, which is, you know, do we like Spotify? Um, and that is an incredibly hot button. Uh, do we like streaming in general? Like, And this is an incredibly hot button issue within the industry. And I think most, art, oh, yeah. most artists would be terrified to even speak on it because you don't want Spotify or Apple to be mad at you because <laughs> if if they are, you have no ability to do anything. Um, but I think that there's, you know, I think Spotify has done incredible work and for what it's worth, you know, as a discovery tool, my release, the algorithmic playlist that they give me to feed me new music that I might be interested in are incredible. I've tried really hard to make my Spotify, understand my listening habits and i find okay. an incredible amount of great music that comes out every week that i've never heard of before from artists that i've never heard of before and it's wonderful and i love it um i all, so the
2: algorithm is becoming your best friend it's becoming josh
3: leggs best friend as a music enthusiast
0: <laughs> yes.
3: goldrim the artist and maybe josh legg as somebody who works in the music industry and started a record label you know i think <laughs> yeah. i think the algorithm is an incredibly Potentially dangerous um, addition to the music industry landscape, and it's putting um, it's it's re- so
2: it's just replacing the old gatekeepers with a new gate.
3: It's re-centralizing power, uh, uh-huh. you know, with the major labels, and um, and then the other thing is it's it it is very significantly influencing the way people make music, um, because the algorithm Spotify only cares about one thing, and they judge how good a song is and how well a song does based on one thing. And that's whether or not you, you decide to stop listening to the song once it's started. And I think that that's an awful judge of whether or not a song is good. If a song is mellow and unobtrusive and doesn't grab you in any way, you may not even notice it. And you may listen all well, the way through. It may through.
2: Not be what's- it may not be what you want to listen to at that moment. You you may just emotionally not be in that state of mind and uh, move on. Uh, but you may come back to it at a later date. Oh, no, but I even mean
3: if you're not noticing it and it's not grabbing you in some way, you may not skip it. And so you'll listen through, and then Spotify all of a sudden decides
2: oh, so. oh this is a, great decides, song. Oh,
3: this is a good song. song. Whereas <laughs> also you may listen – like can you – if if OK Computer came out right now, it would stream so poorly – because it's nothing but – or like Kid A. If Kid A oh. came out, it's it's full of nothing but obtrusive sounds that are there to grab you and challenge you. People would be skipping those songs left and right. They wouldn't be listening to all of those songs straight through. And so the, the skip rates, as they call them, would be really poor. And so that record wouldn't find very many people. Whereas like Kenny G would <laughs> – Would nobody's skipping a dominate. Nobody's skipping a Kenny G song because it's so no offense to any Kenny G fans, but it's so boring that nobody's even bothering to pay attention to what's going on. And so what that's causing is a huge amount of it's causing this like mellowfication of popular music. Where songs are the other thing about skip rates is the shorter your song is, the less likely it is somebody's gonna click out of it. And so Um, songs are becoming shorter and shorter and they take less risks and the songs are becoming less and less, um, less and less obtrusive, less and less challenging uh, because they're more likely to have people just listen through. And so I just think it's a really, the way that Spotify chooses to decide whether or not a song is performing well, I don't think is a good marker for whether a song is doing well. And, and it's, and I think it is causing people to write music differently and it's causing certain music to certain types of music to succeed when others don't. I think that's a problem.
2: Yeah, I I can see. I mean, you know, people are adapting to, um, uh, you know, the, um, the rules as they may be. And to your point, Spotify has created some artificial rules that are not conducive to, Really finding better music, uh, and that that does sound like a, a a challenge. So, is is there a solution? Do you have a, a better way to to go about this?
3: Um, no, I wish. I mean, that's me. Is that the billion dollar idea? I don't know.
2: Yeah, um, I, I, yeah, it it is. I mean, yeah, you know, everybody's talking about music discovery, music discovery, and and how do you how do you you know get this? Because you know, to your your earlier point, you know, the democratization of creating it. Uh, you know, has uh, continued unabated, but, you know, now we, we, we do, we, ha- we, we have a, a, a sea of mediocrity out there. Uh, and that, that brings me to my, my next question because it, it I think it falls in line. I want to bring it in uh, to this discussion and that's, you launched your own label uh, this year called Minerva Music, right? That's
3: right. My, my friend Andre, who makes music as RAC, and I um, started this project well, we started talking about it a year and a half ago, but we launched earlier this year, so we're just wrapping up our our first year now. It's been really exciting to get back into that world. You know, as a DJ, I love digging for new music. I love finding new music. I like helping up and coming artists, but I haven't been able to interact with any of them in a in a in a business sense or in, a, in an entrepreneurial way for years. And so we both had some similar ideas about. Um, wanting to be able to do that. And Andre and I have both been lucky enough now to have careers that are almost 10 years old. And, you know, the idea of bands being together for 10 years, you know, in the 70s or 80s was pretty rare. (laughs) And so I feel pretty lucky to have been able to build a career like that. And we want to be able to help other artists um, achieve that same goal.
2: Well, there, there's a quote that I I, I took about when uh, when when I researched uh, into Minerva and and that that attributed to you that says, we just want to help artists create long careers, and I think that's really important because you know as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, you know it seems like the music business is much more like a puppy mill these days than a stallion stud farm. Big anymore. time. Big and, uh, and and you know, it, it's just churning out the next thing, churning out the next thing, churning out the next thing, you know, and, and I do believe even though, you know, I, you know, gravitate to those artists from 50 years ago, the Dillons, the Who's, the Stones, the Beatles, on and on and on you know, they, 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 they've now had these 50 years, 50 year careers. And of course, if you ask them, you know, at at back in the day, they, they never thought this was going to last more than a a couple of years at, at most. Uh, so they're shocked as anybody that they have these 50 year careers, but you know, I don't see today's artists being in that enviable position of having this long-term career just by the way the music industry looks from my perspective.
3: I'm not sure that there will be monoliths like, like those, like those guys, you know, but I do think, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like Tame Impala is a good example of an, of an act. it's, Uh It's one guy, but most people think of it as a band that has built organically a very large fan base that's been around for almost 10 years. And I think that, you know, he'll don't, he'll never be as big as the Rolling Stones. I don't even know if I need to use him as an example. I think almost anybody with, with a decent sized fan base these days, you know, I think that I think that people are going to be able to tour for a really long time. And I think that fans that are interested in an artist's career I'll just use myself as an example, I guess. this is because this is where all my feelings come from. I think that my it's become apparent to me that my fans are gonna go on a journey with me as long as i'm as long as we both are willing to do it together. And I think as long as i I do these uh, tours during the summer where I play parties on boats, you know, I'm sort of combining my two loves here. And I honestly think if I do boat parties every summer, I could probably do it for another 20 years and the same people are going to keep coming out. And that's pretty exciting to me. And I think that one of the reasons why that's possible is just that we can have this connectivity thanks to technology um, where I can have an ongoing relationship with these people. Whereas, you know, 40 40 years ago, fan clubs were kind of as close as you could get to that. So you'd get get stuff in the mail, maybe a letter. Um, And I just think that, this, this goes back to the technology issues that we were talking about before as far as the democratization of being able to make music. Um, there's pluses and minuses to all of this, but one thing that's for sure is that the more music that is out there and the easier it is to discover every song that's ever been created, the more that everything becomes nicheified. And so the more niches that exist, the smaller that the fan bases are, but it doesn't change the number of passionate fans. So I think that it's and there's a lot of people in the music business that are talking about how you can survive as a musician with one thousand like one thousand super fans. So if you can find a thousand people that truly want to support you, you can potentially have a lifelong career just from those thousand people. Whereas, you know, I think the music business
2: was Yeah, yeah you're not gonna you're not going to have your own private jet uh, like Led Zeppelin, but right. yeah, but but you'll you'll be able to make a a good uh, living, right? Right. And so I think that's
3: I think it's interesting, and I do think it's possible for acts to have that as a goal, and for that to be an attainable goal. And part of that is I just think it was difficult for people to connect, for artists and fans to connect in such a way where the sort of retention of those fans was high in the past, and now I think you can really have a truly you know, mutually beneficial relationship with your fans where it's great for everybody and you can continue, can continue to work that way. I, and I also yeah. just think, you know, labels are greedy right now. You know, the record business is doing really well. Copyrights are worth more than they've ever been before, both on the publishing side and on the master side. And the, the thing that's really exciting for the majors, I think is that everyone's also seeing that um, once a song starts to do well streaming, it just doesn't, it, it never stops. And so, streaming— them, you know, streaming revenue just continues to skyrocket. And um, I think everyone is also seeing additional revenue that's going to be coming in, as places like music on on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and new platforms continue to be monetized. That there's, they just they just see money in bulk. Yeah. And um, and the thing that's unfortunate about that is record deals and publishing deals are still based in in a world where uh, in in an industry that still operates the way it did in the nineties. And we operate from the
2: nineties, a dude, it's it's from a hundred years ago. It's still playing by the rules that were invented in 1915. Yes, exactly.
3: And I think that artists just need to understand that there are different paths and both Andre and I, uh, you know, he with RIC and myself with Goldrum, we started out independently I put out my first uh, two EPs independently. I put out the next EP within, with, with an independent label called Downtown Records. West of the West came out on Interscope, um, which is part of Universal. And Andre had a similar career where he put out stuff independently and released an album with Universal and is now with a large independent label called Counter Records. Um, and so we've worked with labels of all sizes and kind of understood the pluses and minuses of all of those. And I think that what we'd like to do is provide artists with as much flexibility and ownership of their career as possible um, while still benefiting our company, Minerva, and making it so that it's mutually beneficial.
2: Yeah, let me ask you one other thing about uh, uh, Minerva that, uh, that I, I read, and that is you're using blockchain technology. How are, how are you employing that?
3: So we are. Um, and there's a company called Ujo that um, works on the Ethereum blockchain, and they are a music-based company that is essentially working towards being a distribution channel. Um, but for now, uh, what we do is with every release that we put out, we distribute it through the Ethereum blockchain, which basically just means that we the
2: cryptocurrency, right?
3: Yeah. So Ether is the cryptocurrency that is that is used on the Ethereum chain. So basically, we put the albums onto this uh, universally distributed ledger and anybody that wants to can pay for the album uh, with ether and then they can receive the album. It's completely not tied to Minerva or the artist. um, So that uh, one of the interesting things about it is that, you know, if we go away and Minerva goes under that album will still be there forever. Um, It exists. It exists uh, as a part of the chain for as long as the chain exists, which is hypothetically um, forever. And this is sort of uh, the first step for us in that direction. Um, I think we we really agree that uh, that aspects of blockchain technology are going to change the music business. Um, maybe in five years, maybe in ten years, you know, maybe next year. Uh, and we just wanted to, want to be in a position to be flexible and ready for some of those changes to happen. And so this is our first step in that direction. So we're working with Uja on any new products that they roll out. We'll be sort of the first to work with them on. Um, Andre was the first artist to ever put out a full length album via that, um, that chain. So he's got a lot of ties there. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to like go into the specifics of what a decentralized universal Legend. no we don't we don't have means. to go there
2: but uh, it is your my point is is that we've come a long way from Apple core oh, yeah. uh you know the failed Beatles uh, experimented creating their own label uh the lessons have been learned and uh you know uh you know as I, as I mentioned a little bit earlier it's almost it's almost a entrepreneurial streak is needed to really succeed in the mus- the music business these days and uh you know uh, your generation definitely has that um and uh you know I, I tip my hat to you guys
3: Oh well thank you for that I mean I certainly again with Minerva Andre and I have always I think been entrepreneurial at heart even Goldrum really struck a an entrepreneurial you know it it like satisfied and scratched an itch that i have for that and you know mm-hmm. there there came a time now luckily when i think of Goldrum, it's much more sort of creative at, at its heart and a lot of the entrepreneurial spirit that i had sort of needed at the beginning when i was just sort of pulling myself up from nothing that is kind of gone it's one of the reasons why i wanted to start minerva as well um was to be able to sort of scratch that entrepreneurial itch that i have and i also think that the music industry is just in a really interesting place you know a lot of people think it's very hard to make it Um, and that big companies and rich people are the only people that are benefiting from, you know, these changes in the music business. And I pretty firmly believe that that's not true. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for people to create lasting careers. You know, I, I'd be, I'd be curious how many of your listeners even know who I am. And, you know, I've been able to tour around the world five, six, seven times, you know, in the last seven years. And I have a large fan base that, is sticking with me for a while. And that's not me bragging. I'm, I'm, I don't think Goldrum's a very big artist really. And there's, I just think that there's a lot of opportunity in the middle class of, of music, of, of music for people to find their niche. And that's, that's the interesting thing is that uh, the group of fans that might be into your music, they, before it had to be, you know, the people from down the street that went that were at the same bar as you. And yeah. that now it might be a group of teenagers in in Indonesia. I yeah. happen to, I happen to have a really big group of fans in Jakarta, and I have a huge I have a huge following in in uh, in Colombia. And you know I I couldn't tell you why,
2: um, but they must they must love the Southern California sound.
3: I guess. <laughs> and, and so I think it's sort of beautiful that you know because of the internet you know, you can, if you can find your niche out there, you know, that your tribe sort of exists somewhere out in the world and all you got to do is make the music. And if you, if it's, if it's good enough and people connect to it,
2: that it will find an audience.
3: Exactly. And there, and you can, and, and there really is enough money out there now that, um, you know, unlike when I started in 2008, where there was just literally like, no, no pennies anywhere. Um, now I think that there are ways to find, you know, to find a career in music, which is pretty exciting, and I think that's only going to happen more and more over the next decade.
2: Well, before before I let you go, I I, I do want to add one more brick to the Gold Room Empire, and that's you have your own music festival called High Seas as well, right?
3: Yeah. So I mentioned that I do this tour every summer where I sort of combine my passions, and you know, I yeah. think a lot of people think of daytime parties and kickback dance music, you know, when they think of Gold Room. And so it was pretty natural for me. As soon as I realized that people did parties on boats and that that was a thing that was possible, uh, I spent a few years trying to convince my managers and my agent that I should do it. Make this happen. Yes, I have to do a tour where every party's on a boat. And I just heard no, a lot of no. Uh, uh-huh. So eventually I planned as much of it as I could alone and then worked with everybody and we started a tour. So every summer I go around and I, I DJ this like specific brand of laid back, you know, funky disco, um, Mm -hmm. out on the water and it's Harbor cruises. And so last summer was the first summer that I decided to expand the New York and the San Francisco versions of those into full on festivals. And so each of those boats are big enough that there are two stages so, um, I was able to book two days worth of worth of acts on two stages. And um people could come out and spend the whole day out on San Francisco Bay with us and listen to a whole bunch of great music and meet each other. And it was a very interesting learning experience for me. Um, starting a festival is hard,
2: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, well, there is, you've taken all your passions and rolled it into one here. So now, even though it said you have a California sound and what I hear is I, I, it's not so much exclusive to the geography of the Golden State, uh, but more the influences of electronic music that found its way to LA. Um, therefore your sound is far more global than, than geographically limited. Um, do you know, do you agree that you are, you know, I, I, well, I think we've established that you you are you are mining the that California mythology for your music, and and it's working out well around the world, right? I
3: think I think that I think that I'm inspired by California and sort of an ethereal like, a, not in a direct musical way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think musically um, that you know I've toured so much that you know I think you said sort of internationally I think I don't know I I find I find musically I end up getting inspired by a lot of different things the the through line tends to be that people hear hear the ocean um they hear they hear sort of tropicalia in it they hear um daytime and uh and so for a lot of people I think that it makes sense to hear that I'm from LA and those through lines kind of get tied together um but for me, I, yeah, I think it's, I don't know. I don't, I try to not even think about that. You know, as I described to you how I write a song, like uh, at no point in that way, am I talking about my influences or thinking about my influences, right? They just kind yeah, of, they right. just kind of come out. And while I was definitely thinking a lot about LA and what LA means, um, when I started the project, it's. It's been a bit since I've like overtly thought about about LA as a, especially LA as an inspiration um, musically. I don't know. It's interesting. You just now you got my brain spinning in fifty different directions, <laughs> and I'm just I've like just started sessions, the very beginning portion of writing what will become the next batch of Golden music, and so I'm I'm in a very introspective mode right now, trying to think about what everything means and what I want to talk about. And so, I don't know.
2: Well, then I'm, I'm going to lobby for a credit on the next. Album, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It'll... So what, what does 2020 have in store for you?
3: So, um, I'm really focused on, you know, after having done the festivals on the boats, I actually want to re-expand the entire high seas tour. And so I'm bringing, I'm going to be visiting more cities than I have any other year, uh, on the tour. So, um, I'm trying to start a boat. I'm trying to do a, a boat party in on Lake Minnetonka and you know in Minnesota, for example, yeah. which I haven't done before. And nice. I, I skipped being on Lake Travis in Austin this last year, and I'm definitely going to go back and do that this year. And so there's a lot of um I'm, for I'm,
2: South by Southwest.
3: It won't be for South by. It'll be during the summer. Um, although oh, yeah. maybe I'll be down there for South by. It's one of my favorite weeks yeah. of the year. So. Yeah, so there's a big focus on on getting back out and sort of getting back to what I what I really love doing. This last year, I played a lot of club shows, and then we did this tour with the band in the fall. And so I really want to get back to doing to focusing on these on these boat shows this year. I just missed them. Um, and and uh, as I mentioned, I'm starting to to write what comes next. And right. one thing I'm excited about is uh, I when I set out to make Plunge it definitely was, I'm, I'm crafting the next LP and I'm not taking that approach at all right now. Um, I, I just won't write songs. And when I write one and record one that I feel like represents the next phase, I'm going to put it out. <laughs> okay. So I'd, right. I'd like to not be burdened by the, the thought process of I have to finish an album.
2: Right 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 well josh leg Goldroom, room I, i'm just gonna hyphenate you here uh i sure had fun listening and getting to know your work over the last few days and i will certainly be adding you to the backyard party list along with my thievery corporation daft punk playlists thanks Thank so you. much oh thanks so much for being with us on deeper digs and rock
3: this was a great was chat great.
2: yes anytime cheers <laughs> Josh Legg, aka Goldroom. Uh, lots and lots of great info in that interview. I hope uh, you aspiring musicians took notes. Uh, he basically laid out what it takes to get somewhere in the record business these days. Very, very good information. Make sure you check out all of Gold Room's music wherever you get your tunes. Uh, and if you want to check them out live, go to goldroom.la or uh at goldroom on Twitter. Uh, I talked uh, a lot about where rock and roll is these days, and speaking with Josh continues to convince me we are in a totally different era. Definitely not the rock and roll era, but something else. And, and that is, uh, you know, like most things, good and bad. Uh, you know, it's sad that the music invented, um, you know, for uh, a new thing that we now call youth culture has run its course uh, and is not the center of that culture uh, any longer. Again, w- you know, while I think hip-hop is the new rock and roll, which I find a kinship in, um, but, you know, I, I, I kind of see the kinship with blues and rock and roll. It's similar, uh, but not the same thing. But, you know, hip-hop doesn't hold the same position that rock and roll did in the previous century. No music uh, in general uh, as the center of youth culture, uh, it's it's been replaced by social media. Um, that's where the kids find their tribes, their understanding of the world, their sense of self. Uh, music used to be all that, but not anymore. Anyway, that's the bad part. If you love music as much as I do, and I and I know you listening uh, do as well, uh, you know the. Good uh, thing though is that, um, like Gold Room, you know there is a lot more music available these days, (laughs) and and by tenfold or a hundredfold. And and some like Josh can make a decent living playing for a few thousand people every night, or like he said, just having one thousand super fans can make a career. Uh, You know, remember, seventy million people watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Um, that was making it back in the day. <laughs> Not anymore. There are more opportunities for musicians that uh, want and, and have the, the knack for understanding the new game. Um, I don't even think you need a record company uh, anymore. Work hard, learn the craft, be passionate, put out good tracks, and tour, tour, tour to build a rabid following. You know, a, a lot of people can, can do that now. Um, You know, and given the fragmented state of music, uh, there is definitely something for everyone. Look, uh, the rock and roll era arrived at the same time of great innovation. Uh, The invention of mass media and, uh, you know, this new world after World War II. Um, It was all brand new. Uh, Every new record was a challenge to be better than the last. And you could find some new sonic structures or use a new instrument uh, that was from some unknown land or or just invented in some laboratory. It's kind of hard to do that now. Or is it? I found Goldroom's chill SoCal-inspired beats to be fun in certain circumstances. Uh, you know, I know the playlist it belongs in, and I put it there. Uh, it may not be for everyone, and I doubt um, you know I'll become one of his 1,000 superfans. But I do enjoy it in its proper place and time. And there is just so much of that these days. There are hundreds of thousands of bands or artists out there to discover today. You know, it, it's just that, you know, I, I doubt that uh, this will create much of a, uh, a, if I can use an old and obsolete metaphor, a water cooler moment. Uh, and, and I certainly doubt much of today's music will be remembered by the history books as major cultural events because it's, it's just made to be uh, so consumable and Um And that's part of the trade-off. Uh, I know I sound like an old boomer, but uh, I, I'm not lamenting the facts. I'm just pointing them out. Like I said, good and bad. Uh, the choices are far greater today. And the variety? Not even close. I mean, it's an open ocean to explore. You know, something for just about every taste. And there is certainly a story that's being told right now. That I can guarantee. It's just different, is is my point. Okay, next week, (laughs) we're going back uh, to uh, metal with John Weterhorn. He will talk about his new book, Raising Hell, uh, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends, Uh, which uh, has just been published. Um, So from the author of the celebrated classic Louder Than Hell comes an oral history of the badass heavy metal lifestyle. Uh, The debauchery, demolition, and headbanging dedication uh, featuring metalhead musicians from Black Sabbath and Judas Priest to Twisted Sister and Quiet Ride it to uh, Disturbed and Megadeth. Just everybody it's a it's a it's a fun fun book and we'll we'll talk about that next week all right well <laughs> just about the opposite of today's subject huh uh, but that's how i roll okay until next time be chill take a hit oh, or a sip and throw on some gold room and you know what to do keep up the rockin <laughs>
0: spill
1: Deeper Digs in Rocks Produced and hosted by Kristen Swain All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios Find all of our shows, notes, social and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify or Google Play Please purchase these great and important tracks Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at rnrarchaeology. R Archaeology. Tweet us at rnrarchaeology. Archeology.
0: What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> my mom is My mom is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new True Crime History Podcast.